Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer to serve your community in Virginia as far as statutes, cases, new laws, and so on? Uh, this is episode 46 of the podcast. We are getting up there as far as episodes, and thank you so much for sticking with us and listening. Today, we're going to talk about some new statutes that are going to go into effect here in Virginia that the governor has just signed. I did have a chance this month to go on the road to see a lot of you out there, uh, to do a lot of training. It's been really great. I get to see actual faces now as people get vaccinated, uh, and hopefully we'll be back to doing that sooner rather than later, offering some real live trainings out there. So um, thank you guys for coming to the trainings, and, and also welcome, especially to the new faces that I got a chance to go out there and see. The General Assembly has finished their session. The, Senate, the session itself actually finished right about the middle of February. And then they went right into a special session, extending their session for various procedural reasons. And we're not going to get into that. But bottom line is they finally then got done with that session, passed all their bills, and sent them off to the governor. And the governor has spent the last month reviewing those bills and deciding what to sign and what to send back. Uh, he sent back a few bills for amendment that were very interesting. We'll talk about those depending on what happens with those bills. We'll talk about those in a future episode. Um, the General Assembly is going to meet on April 7 to consider the proposed changes that the governor made to a lot of those bills. And some of them are really significant. Some of them involve uh, you know, things like uh, probation supervision. Uh, some of them involve uh, facial recognition technology, which I know we don't really use that much, but it's a you know certainly cutting-edge technology. The governor, though, did sign a lot of legislation uh, from this past General Assembly session. And I want to talk today about some of those pieces of legislation that he signed. In particular, he signed uh, a, a new FOIA uh, statute. And I want to talk about that briefly. Uh, he signed an abolition of the death penalty in Virginia, and that's very significant. He signed a, re he repealed, uh, the General Assembly repealed the punishment for repeated larceny offenses. So second offense and especially third and subsequent offense larceny. He repealed uh, that uh, by signing that bill. Uh, there is a statute uh, about uh, repealing the habitual offender statute. Uh, there is, and there's also mentioned at the end, uh, just two little statutes. One is about carrying firearms at polling places, and another one is about uh, immunity for people who render emergency care for people who are having an overdose. But those are, you know, from the, some of them are very significant, and obviously some are less significant. Uh, statutes, and obviously there's more coming down the road. Uh, before I go any further, I do want to mention, you know, what's going on with the marijuana bill, right? So uh, the marijuana bill was passed by the General Assembly, was passed by both houses. It would have essentially decriminalized, well, we've already decriminalized marijuana. It would essentially have legalized marijuana in a few years. The governor instead proposed legalizing marijuana now but not setting up a system where you'd have legal distribution, again, for another few years, because that's really complicated to set up. But he wants it legal now, which is an interesting approach. Um, we'll see what the General Assembly does with that. Again, they're going to meet on April 7th. Um, and believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, there is talk about another special session that might take place in June. Um, so, you know, 
there you go. Uh, but they're going to at least meet April 7th and kind of talk about what they're going to do. And that marijuana bill obviously will come up. So that is not part of the bills the governor has signed that we know are going to take effect. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But the governor did sign a bunch of uh, statutes that were passed. And one of them was this new FOIA statute. Um, the new FOIA statute is controversial. Uh, the, uh, the Senate uh, voted uh, 23 to 15 on this one. So it was a pretty divided vote. And the House voted 55 to 44 on this one. Again, a pretty divided vote. Um, so not, you know, and, and you'll see as I go through this, this is a pretty sweeping change to how we do FOIA in Virginia. And by the way, guys, I'm just throwing this in. I, I didn't think about this until after I recorded this episode, so I'm throwing this comment in. Uh, these bills all take effect on July 1. So the law that's currently in effect, that stays in effect until July 1. And then all these changes I'm talking about today, they take effect on July 1. And that's going to be true generally of most legislation that gets passed from the session unless otherwise stated. So just real quick, uh, this law, these laws don't take effect until July 1. So you might be accustomed to the fact that in Virginia, in general, criminal investigative files can't be uh, the subject of FOIA. In other words, if a member of the news media or a member of the public, um, a, you know, somebody who is a, a suspect in a criminal offense or maybe the defendant in a criminal offense uh, wants to get a copy of the case file from the investigation into his case, um, he can't do that. I mean, he can't get, you know, the victim statements and your police reports and so on. Uh, it's very difficult to do that. But that's changing in Virginia. Um, so if you think about a state like Florida, in Florida, you know, there really are no FOIA protections or very little FOIA protection for police files. And so police files end up all over the news all the time. Uh, you know, videos, police videos end up on the news all the time. You'll see investigative reports and witness statements and so on just splashed all over the media. Um, you know, Virginia took a look at that and, and, and is sort of moving in that direction. And you'll see that in a moment. They changed the uh, statute so that now... Uh, criminal in incident information that can be FOIA'd includes a general description of the crime, date and time of the crime, general location, identity of the officer, description of injuries, all that stuff, which you could get right now, but also includes uh, diagrams related to the alleged crime uh, and also criminal investigative in information including uh, complaints, court orders, memoranda, notes, initial incident reports, filings through any incident-based reporting system, <clears throat> diagrams, maps, photographs, uh, correspondence, reports, witness statements, evidence uh, related to a criminal investigation or proceeding, if it's no longer ongoing, uh, can be subject to FOIA. In other words, a person uh, can make a FOIA request and you have to, the law enforcement agency has to turn that stuff over. Uh, to the requester, whether the requester is, again, the media or the defendant, uh, the suspect from a case, um, just somebody from the community who wants to themselves get a hold of the photographs and your case notes about a case, um, wants to see what the witnesses said, wants to see witness statements, wants to see reports, wants to hear what the evidence is, wants to see what the evidence is. That can be FOIA'd, um, which obviously doesn't mean that you actually take the bloody jacket and provide it to the defendant, you know, provide it to the defendant, but... Um, you know, you, we have to figure out how you how you adjudicate that. You don't actually get the physical evidence. But 
that is subject to FOIA. And there are only a few exceptions for that. Now I'm going to go through what those exceptions are, and the exceptions are really important. But notice that this covers not just files that you might have right now, but indeed files that you made 10 years ago. So if you have notes that you wrote about a case and the notes that you wrote are 10 years or 10 years old, uh, they're subject to FOIA. Uh, and, you know, again, think about what you write in your notes. You might not write things in, you know, notes expecting them to be on the front page of the newspaper. Um, but now, you know, when you write notes, you should expect that maybe they end up on the front page of the newspaper, uh, that a police report might end on the front page of a newspaper, a victim statement might end on the front page of a newspaper, or a photograph that you take uh, could end up on the front page of the newspaper. So that's a pretty big change to how we do FOIA in Virginia. Now, they wrote a couple of exceptions in here, uh, six to be, in sh to be specific, and I want to go through what those exceptions are. Um, the, the provision that you have to turn this over uh, does not apply if the release of the information, number one, would interfere with a particular ongoing criminal investigation or proceeding in a particularly identifiable manner. Now again, this FOIA provision only applies in general to criminal investigations or proceedings that are not ongoing. Uh, and so again, you have a, might have a case where the, there's still an investigation going on, that information doesn't end up on the, on the newspaper, right? It has to be a closed case, essentially. It has to be a case that either went to court or the, the Commonwealth Attorney declined prosecution, so it's a closed file. So only closed files uh, are subject to this uh, provision. And so it would be unusual for it to be a closed file, but nonetheless, uh, release would interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. But you could certainly imagine a situation where that's true. Uh, number two, uh, release of the information would deprive a person of a right to a fair trial or an impartial adjudication. Again, if the proceeding, this really only applies if the proceeding is ongoing. But you could see a situation where somebody, for example, uh, FOIA'd the criminal investigation file of somebody who is currently on trial for a crime and they want to see the person's old file from their old crime. Well, releasing the old crime might prejudice the current trial. So you want to talk to your commonwealth attorney about that, but that might be a situation where that happens. Number three, this is really important. Release of the information would constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. Right, and this is going to come in again because photographs can be released where you have a crime scene, you know, and you have uh, uh, victims, you know, pictures of, of victims, a picture of a crash, a picture of a crime scene. Maybe you have a video where you interview a crime victim. And again, in general, that kind of information can be FOIA'd. But here, uh, if it is an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy, uh, the video interview uh, that you make uh, or the interview that you have of your victim can be protected, that kind of thing. So that's a really important exception. Number four, the, in, uh, the release shall not apply if it would disclose the identity of a confidential source. Okay, that's really important, right? Uh, narcotics files would be a subject to this. Uh, so, you know, a narcotics investigative file could be released. But, of course, a, a narcotics files has a lot of confidential source information, so that would be a reason to not disclose. Or, in the case of a record compiled by a law enforcement agency in the course of a criminal investigation, information, again, uh, furnished only by a confidential source. So if you have information in your file, maybe a police report, 
where a confidential source has given the information and your only source of that is a confidential source, again, you can, you can withhold that information because if you were to disclose it, it would obviously re result in the disclosure of uh, information from a confidential source. But here it becomes really important to then in your police report or in your system to designate this information came from a confidential source because that's the way that you make sure that you, uh, uh, that you protect that source. Number five, the information shall not be disclosed or doesn't have to be disclosed if it would disclose law enforcement investigative techniques and procedures, if such disclosure could reasonably be expected to risk circumvention of the law. So you think about, again, if you think about narcotics cases, we think about, you know, uh, maybe you have a spotting location, a specific spot that you use to spot drug transactions. And by disclosing the police report, you would disclose, uh, it, would, it would allow people to overcome, you know, to disclose that spotting location. Or again, narcotics cases, if you have a camera and uh, the releasing of the video or releasing the police report reflects what kind of camera it is and how the camera works and how the camera is concealed on the informant who's making the purchase. Uh, here again, <clears throat> you know, people, once they find out where this camera is located and how you've got cameras concealed, will then circumvent the law by, you know, sharing with each other, oh, hey, this is how this is the kind of camera the police use. So uh, here again, uh, you can not you can with, refuse to turn this information over if that applies. And then the sixth exception is if it would endanger the life or physical safety of any individual. Uh, so again, <clears throat> if you can imagine a situation where you know you are worried about the safety of a witness, um, maybe the information about uh, this witness participating in a gang investigation, uh, providing information, you know, the, the witness is not a confidential source, but the information they provided against the gang might make, be a risk to their safety. You could withhold that information if it would endanger the life or physical safety of the individual. Um, so uh, here again, the, um, the, the, there was a, a great deal of objection. You can imagine there was a great deal of objection to this uh, provision. Um, and, you know, the Commonwealth attorneys objected to it. Uh, a lot of law enforcement groups objected to it. A lot of victims groups objected to it. It was very controversial. And as, as you can see from the vote, the vote was rather close. Um, so they added a provision in here, and it states that no photographic, audio, video, or other, rec or other record depicting a victim or that allows a victim to be readily identified um, shall be released pursuant to this provision uh, except to the victim, members of the victim's immediate family, if the victim is deceased, or the parent or guardian of the victim if the victim is a minor. And this was to cover the fact that, again, you know, if you didn't have that in there, essentially the news media could get you know, a body camera of you responding to a domestic violence offense, and there's a victim you know, screaming, crying, injured, and so on, and that could be splashed all over the news media. Um, to their, you know, and get all the clicks that they want. And that would, of course, obviously people, you know, love that stuff and would click all over it and it would be good for the media, but obviously bad for the victim and bad for other victims because it would say, if you call the police, your face is going to end up all over the, you know, Facebook and the TV news and the internet. So they brought this provision in. Um, transcripts of recorded interviews between the victim and law enforcement can be turned over. Uh, but remember that FOIA doesn't require you to create a transcript where there isn't one. If you don't already have a transcript, you don't have to turn it over. If you have a transcript, then it would have to be turned over. So the statements of the victim would have to be turned over. 
um, but at least the audio or the video or the photographs depicting the victim or allowing the victim to be identified don't have to be turned over unless they're being requested by the victim uh, or if the victim is, is deceased, the immediate family of members of the victim. And again, this is an important pr protection uh, given how sweeping this change is. Um, the, um, if an order is issued to seal files for some particular reason, uh, that order would override, obviously, uh, this as well. One interesting change was, of course, uh, in this, and this was a last-minute change, but insisted upon by those who objected to this uh, provision, you know, suddenly now you can see a situation, uh, and again, when this goes into effect, you can imagine a flood of requests for some very... Uh, salacious and high-profile criminal invest investigative files. You know, you all have in your jurisdictions very famous criminal cases. The news media would love, or people on the web would love to get the files and post them and create their own little, you know, um, you, you know, sort of gruesome uh, recount of cases and put all the information on the police reports on and so on and create websites to draw traffic in and get people to click on their websites. Um, and there'll be a flood of those kinds of requests, uh, all at once, of course. And, you know, FOIA has some very pretty strict deadlines. you got to respond within, you know, basically, you know, five days or you get fined. Um, and that's a pretty brutal uh, request, especially when you have a huge file and a lot of concerns about public safety and concerns about the safety of your witnesses and whether you're pr producing public identifiable information. So at the last minute, one thing they did do was extend the response here uh, for the public body if you need it to up to 60 working days um, for to, to provide a response. So um, that is, a, you know, to at least be able to sit there and look through your file and figure out if you're going to turn it over or not. That's a pretty big uh, exception here. Um, and it's obviously really important because, you know, they've really flipped the switch on uh, FOIA here. Okay, so that's the first bill. Um, and by the way, if you're tracking this information, um, these are all changes to the FOIA bills, which are in 2.2, but the bill itself is House Bill 2004, which is uh, from Delegate Hurst. Um, there were two bills. Uh, Delegate Mullen um, had a bill to abolish the death penalty, um, and so did uh, Delegate uh, Senator Suravel. Those were both passed by both the House and the Senate and signed by the governor. And essentially all it does is eliminate the death penalty. Um, if you are convicted of a capital offense, there are still capital offenses, uh, but if you're convicted of a capital offense, you merely face life in, pen in the penitentiary or up to $100,000 and up to a $100,000 fine. You are not subject to good time credits uh, if you are convicted of capital life. So you can't get um, the sort of uh, new version of parole that was invented last year where everybody gets, you know, basically half off their sentences or 15% off depending on whether their offense was violent or nonviolent. A lot of offenses, you know, it's basically op op almost half off, you know, for grand larcenies and burglaries and those kinds of offenses. But but here you got to serve your life sentence, uh, essentially, and uh, if you're convicted of a capital offense. So it would still sometimes make, make sense to charge someone with a capital offense, uh, but you... Uh, you cannot get the death penalty in Virginia any longer. And by the way, you can't charge somebody with a capital offense as, a, as an officer on a warrant anyway, so that's a decision always made by the Commonwealth's attorney either way. 
Um, pretty straightforward statute, uh, pretty big change to Virginia, although the death penalty hasn't been imposed very often in recent years. Obviously, it's you know been a significant point of contention for many years in Virginia. A much more commonly charged offense, however, is the offense of petty larceny third or subsequent offense, which is a felony offense. And obviously the General Assembly, by raising the larceny threshold to $1,000, has certainly shifted, you know, a lot, there's a lot more petty larceny now than there used to be, uh, because, you know, it's hard to get over that $1,000 threshold. The General Assembly also, however, eliminated the provision that says if you commit more than one petty larceny, uh, it, it, it's, it's punishable by a second offense, which is more punishment, and a third or subsequent is a felony. That's now eliminated, uh, and that's House Bill 2290 from, uh, from, uh, from Delegate Plum. Um, again, very contentious bill. Uh, it passed the Senate only 21 to 18, very close, uh, and the House 52 to 45. Uh, but the governor did sign it, and it repeals that provision. So now, you know, 10 petty larcenies, 100 petty larcenies. If you commit a petty larceny every week, all you get is a misdemeanor. Uh, there is no felony for that offense. While we're on the topic of offenses being repealed, another offense that has been repealed is the Habitual Offender Code section. Um, there are probably fewer and fewer of you who listen to this podcast who even know what really the habitual offender section is. This is a pretty old provision. Back in the 90s, the DMV had a system, and we talk about repeat offenders, right? And we're talking about, you know, petty larceny, for example, right? That's, a, you know, where you keep committing the same crime over and over again. In the 90s, when you had people who, who kept committing, for example, driving suspended over and over again, or believe it or not, DUI over and over again. Uh, it wasn't a felony offense to commit multiple DUIs. You had people who committed, you know, multiple, sometimes up to a dozen DUIs. It was always a misdemeanor. And there wasn't a lot you could do about it back in the old days other than just keep prosecuting them for DUI. So the DMV uh, had this system where they would designate people as habitual offenders. And if once you got designated as a habitual offender, if you drove, uh, it could be a felony offense. Uh, if you drove and committed another traffic offense, it could be a, a felony offense. If you drove second or subsequent conviction as a habitual offender, it was a felony offense. And it was a mandatory sentence of a year. So after a while, they stopped designating people as habitual offenders. Uh, that happened as part of a deal that was made when DUI punishments were enhanced um, back at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, when they enhanced, they enhanced the punishments for DUI third, for DUI fourth. Uh, they included lots of mandatory sentences for DUI third and DUI fourth. And sort of the deal that was made between people who really wanted to hold uh, dangerous drivers accountable and people who didn't like holding dangerous drivers accountable was that uh, that the that they, the DMV would stop designating people as habitual offenders. So uh, there were no more people designated as habitual offenders. But to this day, there are still people going around who have been who were designated as habitual offenders on the old system, and who from time to time, if they were caught driving, would be able to be charged under this code section. Um, and so you'd find them less and less, obviously, as they start to get restored, because you could go to court and get restored, um, get your license restored, uh, or as, you know, they died out or, you know, retired and stopped really driving. 
But this year, uh, Senator Stanley introduced a bill that would essentially order that all these people get their licenses back, a process be put in place, and they all get their licenses back, or at least their designation as habitual offender be removed from the system. So even if they don't get a license, they're no longer habitual offenders. So uh, within a short period of time, you should no longer see people showing up as habitual offenders. You might have been working as an officer for years without ever having seen one, uh, but you won't see them anymore. Uh, two more little bills that were passed by the General Assembly uh, and signed by the governor this past, uh, this, in this past month. One was uh, House Bill 2081, which was a bill from Delegate Levine, which prohibits a person from knowingly or possess, knowingly possessing a firearm within 40 feet of a building or the part of a building that is used as a polling place. And... Obviously, lots of places are used as polling places, lots of places where it's lawful to carry a firearm uh, the rest of the time, but all of a sudden it's a polling place, so what happens? Um, the, the statute specifies that it only applies one hour before and one after its use as a polling place. Now, in addition to that, you might say, well, you know, my department's supposed to buy security, so, you know, obviously I'm not going to wear a badge and walk in there without a gun if I'm not, if I'm supposed to be security. Um, there's lots of exceptions built in. Uh, one is for a qualified law enforcement officer or retired law enforcement officer. Uh, lots of polling places are within, you know, what if I'm what if I'm within 40 feet of a polling place and that's where I live? Uh, you know, are you saying that I can't possess a firearm at my home? No, there's an exception for people who are occupying their own private property. And obviously, uh, if you're hiring licensed armed security at a polling place, uh, then um, then you know, you, you're permitted to carry a firearm. But this extends not just to polling places, but also to within 40 feet of a meeting place for local electoral boards when the electoral board meets to ascertain the results of an election or is setting up for a recount. So uh, it does apply to lots of different situations, not just the polling place itself, but also to those kinds of facilities as well. Um, although, again, um, it is it applies to 40 feet of the building or 40 feet of the part of the building that's used as a polling place. You can imagine a situation where you have a community center and maybe the community center is very, very large, uh, but only a very small part of the community center is used as a polling place. Uh, this statute seems to say within 40 feet of the part of the building that is used as a polling place. So if you're, if you're 100 feet away from the polling place, still in that building, it doesn't seem to prohibit you from possessing a firearm in that part of the building that's not being used as a polling place as long as you're 100 feet from the polling place. I think that's what the statute says. It's, it's, it's not written, Delegate Levine is not a lawyer, and Delegate Levine often writes statutes that are a little hard to read, um, and this is no exception. Um, but it is the law, and, uh, and, and as I indicated, uh, an exception certainly for those of you who are listening to the podcast is any law enforcement officer. Uh, or a retired law enforcement officer. And by the way, it doesn't say on-duty law enforcement officer. It just says any law enforcement officer. So, you know, again, if you're going home from work and you're going to go vote, um, you're not required to, to leave your gun in your car, which is not a great idea anyway, um, you know, just to go inside and vote. The last bill uh, that I want to mention today that was signed by the governor is, um, is uh, uh, excuse me, House Bill uh Oops, where is the statue? Sorry, uh, House Bill 1821, which was from Delegate uh, Belova. And this extends the immunity from arrest and prosecution for overdoses. 
as you know, there is a code section that was passed a couple of years ago, and it's been expanded a little bit every year, that provides immunity from arrest or prosecution for people who are experiencing overdoses if uh, rescue is called for them. And they extended it also to people who are calling rescue for somebody else. If you're calling rescue for somebody else, you're immune from arrest or prosecution for that. Um, if you, in good faith, seek emergency care for that person, uh, contemporaneously, you have to call uh, you have to call, you know, 911 or, or, or request rescue when the overdose is happening. You can't let the person die and then later on, obviously, call. That doesn't give you the immunity. Um, but Delegate Belova's expansion covers situations where people in good faith render emergency care, including CPR or giving naloxone, to somebody uh, experiencing an overdose while somebody else calls 911. And again, you know, query whether or not people who are addicts and people who are... Um, uh, you know, in, involved in heavy drug use are, you know, over are examining the niceties of law and recognizing who and who would not get immunity here. But uh, this statute does say now that, okay, so if you have three people, one of them has an overdose, one of them calls 911, and one of them give, give CPR, all three of them would be, uh, would get this immunity under this code section. Um, remember here that that this can be very complicated to figure out, and the General Assembly has written a very complicated code section. And so in view of that, there's a provision that says no law enforcement officer acting in good faith shall be found liable for false arrest if it is later determined that the person arrested was immune from prosecution under this code section. So again, you ought to follow this code section. You ought to recognize it. You ought to, um, uh, you know, follow its strictures. But if you're concerned, like you're looking at this thing, like, look, I don't really understand this code section. It's really complicated. It's got all these weird provisions and all these weird sections. Um, you know, I'm not going to respond to overdose calls if I have to, you know, if I'm looking at getting sued. Um, this provision here uh, does uh, help a little bit here. So a lot of changes, some really big changes uh, to how we do law and law enforcement and for law enforcement officers here in Virginia. Um, you know, certainly big policy changes like capital punishment, but uh, changes like the FOIA bill uh, will really change every day, I think, uh, how we, you know, hear what law enforcement does in Virginia and how the media and how the web and how the internet covers law enforcement. Um, the petty larceny bill statute is a big, big change um, to how we prosecute theft in Virginia, which is a huge crime, and a lot of offenses take place. Um, so, you know, stuff to keep in mind. We're going to keep you updated about new statutes as they come out. There are a lot of statutes that the governor still hasn't signed or is considering or has sent back for uh, review by the General Assembly for some baby changes. And like I said, believe it or not, might be another special session in June. So... You know, here we go. Um, but I hope that was helpful. I hope you guys liked the podcast for today. Uh, that's all for today. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. If you want us to be on another app, let me know. I'll try to get on that app. But other than that, that's for today. That's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.